Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Well, welcome. You are listening to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, good to catch up with you. I look forward to these visits because... Always good to be with you, Brian. The opportunity we have here to get the word about the U.S. Constitution out to people throughout this country. And we hope we have a lot of listeners. I might add one thing else, too. And that's that my hope is that as people are listening, they can go back into the archives and listen to past classes where we've talked about Article 1, Article 2, or Article 3, or where we've talked about the First Amendment or Sixth Amendment trial by jury. And if you have questions about a particular section of the Constitution, go back to our archives and listen to what we've said. We've been on the air now for more than a year, and we have covered most of the Constitution already, and we'll be going through it in a little more depth when we complete that and get ready to start again. But also, if you have questions concerning subjects that are coming up, or if you have questions concerning how the Constitution applies to current events, send in a question for us, and we will do our best to give you an answer on the next program. It may not be the right answer, but it'll be at least our answer, and we'll do our best to make it the right answer. We'll probably learn something in researching it and giving you an answer, too. Well, I'm, I'm anxious to talk with you each week because I find out that uh, far from being an out-of-date old document just writing on paper, the Constitution is as relevant today as it has ever been. Even though our circumstances and issues may change from time to time, um, there, there's still great wisdom to be found in understanding why the government was framed the way that it was by the founders. And so to that end, we've been working our way through and uh, discussing a number of uh, of the reasons why they set it up the way they did. Where are we now? We're still in Article 4, correct? We're still in Article 4, but we might mention a couple things going on that show the play of the Constitution in daily life. And one of them is going on up in Minneapolis today. And we know about the trial of Officer Derek Chauvin and other police officers that were involved last May in this incident that involved the death of George Floyd. And notice I haven't called it murder because we don't know yet. There are reasons to think possibly that what Officer Chauvin did was not the cause of George Floyd's death, but that now is going to be for a jury to determine. And based upon the Constitution, particularly the Fifth and Sixth Amendments, we see that he is entitled to a presumption of innocence. We see that that presumption of innocence has to be overcome by a proof beyond a reasonable doubt. We see his right to a jury trial, and the jury is being selected right now. We see his right to an attorney and right to confront, cross-examine witnesses and the like. But he's entitled to a fair trial, and that includes a trial of jurors who are not biased. And with all of the publicity that's gone on involving this case, there could be a question as to whether or not in Minneapolis they would be able to impanel an unbiased jury. I know they are trying to do that. But one of the remedies that he could have would be to move for a change of venue, that is to move it to somewhere else in the state of Minnesota, 
somewhere where there might not be the same kind of pretrial publicity or the same kind of inflamed public opinion. And what's going to be done there, we don't know. But there's another thing. In the last couple of days, the city council there has approved a settlement with Mr. Floyd's family of $27 million in compensation for Mr. Floyd's death. And that could have some effects on the trial if the jurors are aware of it. And pretty hard to shield that information from jurors, especially when they're not yet impaneled. But on the one hand, jurors could be thinking that, well, this means the city has acknowledged that they, and by they, we would mean Officer Chauvin, were at fault in this, and that could affect their determination as to guilt or innocence. It could also affect their feeling of maybe anger toward Mr. Chauvin, Officer Chauvin, feeling that he has cost the city $27 million, or it could possibly even have the other effect and feel that the victims here have been adequately compensated and therefore that could alleviate some of the effects here. Anyway, so there are a lot of things going on here that we don't know what the ultimate effects of that are going to be. And, but it does demonstrate once again that the constitutional guarantees of a jury trial, the jury of your peers who are unbiased, and the other guarantees there are at work on a daily basis. We also see another provision of the Constitution there in Article 1 that says that each House of Congress will be responsible for making its own rules and for the discipline of its own members. And we see a couple of things going on there. First of all, in the House, there was a Congresswoman who was elected from Iowa and elected in an extremely close election, I think the closest of the year, and the counts seem to have agreed that she was elected by a total of six votes. Congressman, the Republican congressman from southeast Iowa. And anyway, she has taken her seat in Congress, but now we understand that her Democrat challenger is now challenging the election in Congress. She had the option to challenge it before the bipartisan commission in Iowa, and that bipartisan commission in Iowa determined that the Republican had won by six votes, which is what the counts had confirmed. But rather than going to the courts, which was her challenger's option, she instead chose to go to Congress. And as partisan as the Congress has been, and as powerful as Speaker Pelosi has been and able to get every one of the Democrat congresspersons there to vote together as a block, it is possible that they could vote to unseat Congressman Means and put in the challenger in her place. I think that demonstrates that the Founding Fathers did not really understand probably one thing. I mean, obviously, they were men of great wisdom, and I believe that they had some divine help, but if there was one thing that maybe they didn't adequately foresee, it was that how partisan American politics would become. You consider, for example, that 
they provided that there would be the Electoral College and that whoever got the most votes in the Electoral College, provided it was majority, would be president. And whoever got the second most votes would be vice president. And then they would work together as president and vice president for the next four years. They apparently failed to conceive, to conceive just how difficult this might be if the winner and the first runner-up were very opposite persuasions and didn't get along. And of course, very quickly in the 1790s, we see the division of the country into the Federalist Party and the Democratic Republican Party, Federalists led by Alexander Hamilton, the Democratic Republicans, now called the Democrats, led by Jefferson. Hamilton wanting a more powerful central government, Jefferson wanting more states' rights and a less powerful government. But when John Adams, a Federalist, was president and Jefferson was vice president, they simply didn't get along at all. Nor, when Jefferson became president, did he get along with his vice president, Aaron Burr. And so that had to be changed, and it may be that this needs to be changed as well. But also in the Senate, we see another matter going on right now. The Senate has had a rule that has been in effect for many, many years that senators have unlimited debate and Sometimes an unlimited debate can be called a filibuster, and if the Senate does not have 60 votes to cut off the filibuster, then the filibuster can go on and the bill can be killed. And anyway, Democrats right now, since they have a 50-50 majority when you include the vice president, but they don't have the votes necessary to invoke cloture and cut off filibusters, which might stop them from getting certain things like the Equality Act and the For the People Voting Act, get those things through. So now they are talking about trying to cut off the filibuster and end the cloture rule. And we'll see what happens on that. So the Constitution is being practiced on a regular basis right now. At the American Veterinary Medical Association Annual Convention in Washington, D.C., I spoke with Dr. John Howe, AVMA president, about One Health. One Health is really a collaboration between physicians and veterinarians or public health officials. For example, in Minnesota, our state public health veterinarian deals with zoonotic diseases, rabies, for example. Animals are sentinels for humans, and humans are sentinels for some infections in animals. There's more valuable information at avma.org. You've heard me talking about my pillow for three years, folks. It's the truth. I get the best sleep of my life with a my pillow. You can do it too. 60 day money back guarantee, 10 year warranty made in the USA. You'll sleep well or you'll get your money back. Go to mypillow.com, click on the radio listener special, use my promo code USA, get two my pillow premium pillows for the price of one, or call 1 800 951 8175. Get the best sleep of your life and do it now. 
Pure Light has invented a new type of LED light bulb that makes all other light bulbs obsolete. This new type of LED bulb acts like a $1,000 air purification system, only better. Put this light bulb in, turn it on, and within minutes it starts cleaning and purifying the air and the surfaces around it. Um, I have a stinky dog, and so I put the four bulbs in within 24 hours. I could tolerate it, and then when I turn the lights on in the morning, I went back 20 minutes later, nothing, no smell. The Pure Light LED light bulb performs seven functions besides providing light, including cleaning the air of all types of odors, any kind of smoke, of eliminating mold and eliminating deadly germs like salmonella, E. coli, even flesh-eating bacteria. My kids who are grown up say our house smells like old people house. And so I put bulbs in the hallway and my uh, kids from Florida came last week and said, man, the house smells great. See for yourself at pure-light.com. That's pure-light.com. It's the next generation of light. Trading involves financial risk and is not suitable for all investors. Past results do not guarantee future performance. Want to dominate the stock market in 2021? Looking for higher profit potential? With the COVID vaccines, a shifting political landscape, and a new year, it's virtually impossible to guess what will happen next. With Vantage Point, you don't have to. Text MONEY to 411411 to find out how our technology can forecast market trends up to three days in advance with incredible accuracy. Text MONEY to 411411 to find explosive of moves before they happen. Vantage Point's patented technology analyzes huge quantities of global data in seconds. Text MONEY to 411411 to find out how. Make 2021 your year. Start predicting trends 72 hours in advance and maximize your gains. Text MONEY to 411411 and experience Vantage Point for free. Protect and grow your capital now. Don't wait. Text MONEY to 411411. Respondents will receive a one-time auto-generated text message from Vantage Point. Once again, we welcome you back to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. So we have made our way through to Article 4. We're actually a good portion of the way through Article 4. Um, where would you like to pick up? I think what were we talking about uh, last last week? It was... Uh, well, as we look through these articles, of course, Article 1 was Congress, Article 2, the President, Article 3, the Court. Article 4, we titled Relations Among States. And we begin with what's called the Full Faith and Credit Clause, which requires the states give full faith and credit to the legal acts that are done in other states. And anyway, for example, a will that is legal where it is executed has to be accepted in all other states. If you go to Nevada and get a divorce or get a marriage in Nevada, other states have to recognize that marriage is valid if it is valid under Nevada law, and so on. And then we went on from there to the Privileges and Immunities Clause, which says that states, whatever privileges they give to the people of their states, they have to accord to the people from out of state as well. For example, if you have a university, you don't have to have state universities, but if you have them, you have to allow non-residents to attend your university as residents. If you have a hunting and fishing season, you have to allow non-residents to hunt and fish as you allow residents. The only thing is, you can impose extra charges for non-residents, recognizing, for example, with universities that residents pay taxes to support those universities and non-residents do not, 
And so to have a reasonable differential there for resident versus non-resident tuition or resident versus non-resident hunting and fishing licenses, that is permissible. But you can't limit those privileges to residents of the state alone. And then we go on further in Section 2 of Article 4 concerning extradition. A person charged in any state with treason, felony, or other crime who shall flee from justice and be found in another state shall on demand of the executive authority of the state from which he fled be delivered up to be removed from the state or to the state having jurisdiction of the crime. We call that extradition. And for example, let's say somebody commits a crime in Utah and they flee to, let's say, New Mexico and they are picked up in New Mexico. And so the governor of Utah learns that Mexico is holding this person. Maybe they're holding this person on another charge or maybe they haven't even picked up that person, but we've got information that person is now residing in New Mexico. Then the governor of Utah can submit what we call an extradition request. It's actually more of a demand than a request. And asking that the governor of New Mexico deliver that person to Utah to stand trial. And the governor of New Mexico is required to do that under most circumstances. The only times he would not be required to do so would be if New Mexico was holding that person for criminal charges of their own. And then if New Mexico chooses to do so, they can keep the person, try the person for the offense there and make the person serve his sentence in New Mexico before sending him back to Utah to be tried for the offense in Utah. Normally, though, you find that states are very cooperative about this. If you're holding somebody on criminal charges and another state says, no, we would like to relieve you of all the expense of taking that case to trial and housing that person for years in your prison, normally the state that is holding that person is eager to comply, and that's worked out very easily. The exception, another exception is if the governor of New Mexico had reason to think that the defendant would not receive a fair trial in Utah. We had an incident like this, oh, 20 some years ago involving California and South Dakota. At this time, California had a rather flamboyant liberal Democrat governor, Jerry Brown, and South Dakota had an equally flamboyant conservative Republican governor, William Janklow. Now earlier, there had been problems in the 1970s in South Dakota with what was called the American Indian Movement. A lot of reservations in South Dakota, and this was a radical movement that was involved in some acts of violence, and Several federal officers were killed, allegedly murdered, by AIM, American Indian Movement leaders, who had then fled the state. One of those, and I believe his name was Russell Means, if I recall correctly, one of those, a couple of decades later, 
was found living in California. And anyway, Governor Janklow of South Dakota then submitted an extradition request to Governor Brown of California. Governor Brown responded that there was such a climate of prejudice against the American Indian movement, not against Indians as a whole, but against the American Indian movement, this radical group in South Dakota, that Means would not receive a fair trial in South Dakota, and so he refused to extradite him. Well, there was quite an outrage about this in South Dakota, and Governor Janklow, who had a flair for the dramatic sometimes, decided to release several prisoners from the South Dakota State Penitentiary on parole. And one of the conditions of their parole was that they had to move and establish residence in California. And <laughs> anyway, of course, Governor Brown protested this, but legally, there was nothing he could do about it. But things like that very seldom happen. Normally, extradition matters work out very smoothly. Once in a while, we have another extradition matter, and this article is not directly deal with this, but what about extradition from one country to another? And we had an incident some time ago where the federal government wanted to extradite somebody from a European country, and the other country agreed to send the person to America for trial. And anyway, but on condition that the, Amer the federal government, the United States, would not impose the death penalty because that country didn't believe in the death penalty. Well, the person was extradited to the United States and a state prosecutor in one of the states decided to file a charge and to demand the death penalty of that charge. They tried to say, well, wait a minute, that's contrary to the extradition agreement that we have. The local prosecutor said that was an agreement by the federal government. Our state didn't agree to that. And my local office didn't agree to that. And I don't think that matter has been resolved yet. But again, these are glitches. These are exceptional. They don't happen very often. But when they do, obviously, we have to go to the courts to try to get those matters resolved. Then we move on to section three. And section three talks about the admission of new states into the Union. And obviously, we started out as a Union of 13 states. We now have 50 states. And so obviously, we've admitted new states 47, or I'm sorry, 37 times. And at the present time, we're talking about statehood for the District of Columbia and statehood for Puerto Rico. And so we have issues that will have to be resolved there, and we'll talk more about those when we come back from, from the break.
You are listening to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We are in uh, Article 4 of the Constitution, and uh, now we get to talk about uh, something that we haven't seen for quite a while, Colonel, and that's the admission of new states. No, and I think for probably a lot of our listeners, they think that's not in our lifetime. Well, I'm 75, and so I do remember the admission of new states. Oh, yes, I remember way, way back when Florida came into the Union, Vermont back in the late 70s. No, no, I'm not that old. But, <laughs> but no, I remember in the mid-1950s that Alaska became a state, and a couple years later, Hawaii became a state, which brought us to the current 50 states. And a lot of people think maybe that's a pretty good round number of states and that maybe it ought to stay that way. But what happens when we have a territory that is interested in becoming a state? Well, Article 3 and Section 3 says, new states may be admitted by the Congress into this union, but no new state shall be formed or erected within the jurisdiction of any other state nor any state be formed by the junction of two or more states or parts of states without the consent of the legislatures of the states concerned, as well as of the Congress. That we're talking about there taking from parts of states and so on. We'll save that for just a little bit later. But as far as new states coming into the Union, the way that is commonly done is if you have a territory, the first of these being Vermont, and then I believe Maine, and short after that, Florida, and then Alabama, and some of the other southern states, and moving into the what was called the Northwest at that time, although we wouldn't call it Northwest. We're talking about the Northwest Ordinance covering places like Michigan and areas that we don't think of as Northwest today, but they were from the eastern seaboard back in those days. These states are admitted, and on them to... The Great Plains, or the Midwestern states, the Great Plains states, the Mountain states, and actually California and several of the West Coast states were admitted before some of those that were in the less populated interior, states like Arizona and New Mexico, and a little bit before that, I believe it was 1919, about Oklahoma. Dakota Territory then was divided into two states. You know, it's not quite the same thing as with the Carolinas, the Carolinas were separate colonies. And so they were separate states before they were admitted to the Union and had been separate colonies before that. But Dakota Territory was one territory, and partly because of the size of Dakota Territory, they decided to divide it into North Dakota and South Dakota. Of course, I was born in South Dakota, my wife was born in North Dakota, and We've lived in North Dakota, too, but a lot of people think that maybe the Dakotas were not properly divided, that maybe they should have been divided along the Missouri River as East Dakota and West Dakota, because Western North and South Dakota is ranch country, Eastern North and South Dakota is more farm country, and maybe there'd be more commonality of interest had they done it that way, but they didn't, and it's probably worked out quite well, I guess. But if the territory is interested in becoming a state, what they will do is they will petition to Congress. And 
say to Congress, we are interested in statehood. Most likely the territory has already been organized as a territory by the United States. It will probably have a territorial governor, a territorial legislature and laws, some of which are adopted by that territory and some of which may be adopted by Congress for the territory. But when the territorial legislature submits to Congress a request that we'd like to become a state, then Congress will consider that. And if they decide, yes, we think maybe you would make a good state, they'll pass what we call an enabling act. And the enabling act will tell the territory, okay, if you want to become a state, here's what you need to do before we will consider you. First of all, you need to have a constitutional convention and you need to draft a constitution for your state. And this constitution will include these various provisions. For one thing, they'll probably say, and enabling acts for each of these states have differed somewhat, but usually they said you have to have three branches of government, legislative, executive, and judicial. You have to have a bill of rights that guarantees rights to your citizens. And then various other things that they will require that the territory put into its proposed state constitution and usually guarantees of religious liberty. And sometimes we can use those guarantees and what the Enabling Act said as ways of interpreting what the state constitution means after it's adopted. For example, if the Enabling Act says that your state has to guarantee perfect religious liberty, then that's a basis for saying that the state constitution has been approved by Congress to mean perfect, that is complete, religious liberty. There was one state, the state of Utah, where they wanted to become a territory, and there was some concern about the issue of polygamy at that time. And one of the things that the Congress insisted on was that if Utah was gonna become a state, they had to prohibit polygamy in their state constitution. And it is interesting, Utah is the only state in the union that has a prohibition on polygamy in its state constitution. And that is the reason. And it's kind of strange that when we see the federal courts now approving same-sex marriage and who knows what's gonna be beyond that, the federal courts next may be approving polygamy which may mean that the federal government forced the state of Utah to adopt a provision prohibiting polygamy. And then the federal courts in the near future may turn around and say that those provisions are invalid. Anyway, when the state completes its constitution and adopts that constitution, they will send it to the Congress. The Congress will look it over and determine whether it meets the conditions set forth in that enabling act. And if it does so, then they will say, okay, we approve your constitution. Now, what you need to do in your state is have a state referendum on whether you want to become a state. And anyway, if the state votes for statehood, then they are admitted as a new state to the union, which would mean normally then that we need to put an extra star in the flag and 
in other ways recognize that our union has grown once again. Now, if this were done with Puerto Rico, now, Puerto Rico is in an interesting position on this because Puerto Rico right now is a territory of the United States. As such, territory of Puerto Rico has many of the protections of the United States Constitution, but they don't have the right to vote in presidential elections. Now, the both parties, I believe, allow the territories to send delegates to their national conventions, and so they can have a voice in the party's national convention about who they want the nominee of the party to be, but they don't get to vote in the general election itself. On the other hand, being territories, they don't have to participate in the payment of taxes. And so they save a great deal on federal taxes. And I've been told by friends in Puerto Rico that there are essentially three factions in Puerto Rico right now. One faction would be on one side favoring statehood. Another faction on the other side favors complete independence from the United States. And then in the middle is a faction that would like to keep things as they are with, as they see it, the best of both worlds. We get the rights of American citizens, except for the right to vote, but we don't have to pay taxes. And so what Puerto Ricans are going to want in this, we'll have to see. And then, of course, the issue is complicated in Congress, because in Congress, the issue then is going to be not just do we want another state, but if that state is likely to vote for one party or the other, and indications are that Puerto Rico initially might be a Democrat-leaning state, although the Hispanic vote might be much more conservative than a lot of people think, and we might be surprised on that. In fact, a lot of people thought a long time ago Alaska would be a Democrat state. It's turned out to be Republican. And Hawaii would be a Republican state, and it's turned out to be Democrat. We could be surprised with Puerto Rico as well. Okay, on that note, we're going to take a very quick break. You are listening to Constitution Classroom, and we'll be back right after this. At the American Veterinary Medical Association Annual Convention in Washington, D.C., I spoke with Dr. John Howe, AVMA president, about One Health. One Health is really a collaboration between physicians and veterinarians or public health officials. For example, in Minnesota, our state public health veterinarian deals with zoonotic diseases, rabies, for example. Animals are sentinels for humans, and humans are sentinels for some infections in animals. There's more valuable information at avma.org. You've heard me talking about my pillow for three years, folks. It's the truth. I get the best sleep of my life with a my pillow. You can do it too. 60 day money back guarantee, 10 year warranty made in the USA. You'll sleep well or you'll get your money back. Go to mypillow.com, click on the radio listener special, use my promo code USA, get two my pillow premium pillows for the price of one, or call 1 800 951 8175. Get the best sleep of your life and do it now. Bible. 
Pure Light has invented a new type of LED light bulb that makes all other light bulbs obsolete. This new type of LED bulb acts like a $1,000 air purification system, only better. Put this light bulb in, turn it on, and within minutes it starts cleaning and purifying the air and the surfaces around it. Um, I have a stinky dog, and so I put the four bulbs in within 24 hours. I could tolerate it, and then when I turn the lights on in the morning, I went back 20 minutes later, nothing, no smell. The Pure Light LED light bulb performs seven functions besides providing light, including cleaning the air of all types of odors, any kind of smoke, of eliminating mold and eliminating deadly germs like salmonella, E. coli, even flesh-eating bacteria. My kids who are grown up say our house smells like old people house. And so I put bulbs in the hallway and my uh, kids from Florida came last week and said, man, the house smells great. See for yourself at pure-light.com. That's pure-light.com. It's the next generation of light. Mounds and mounds of fur. Our hairballs have hairballs. Our cat mama, she's 10 years old. She has dandruff and an oily coat. I have two cats, Zippy and Daisy. Daisy sheds like crazy. If you love your pets as much as I do, you'll want to do what's best for them, to live long, healthy, happy lives. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. I just tried this wonderful, catalicious Dynavite for cats, and my cat has been on it for two weeks. She is not scratching anymore. She's not chewing anymore. It is just the best. I was thrilled when I heard Dynavite for cats was coming out because I would seen the changes in my dog. To introduce my cat to Dynavite, I took the advice from Dynavite and put their food on top of just a scoop in the bowl just to get them used to it because I know if I even switch one little thing, they put their nose up to it. There was not one problem. Dynavite for life. You won't believe how happy your cat will be. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. And we are back. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. How close are we to uh, to completing our journey through Article 4, Colonel? I think we may finish Article 4 today. We'll come close if we don't, but we still, still have a number of issues on statehood to consider here. We've already seen the issue with Puerto Rico, and it is unfortunate that the issue is complicated by partisan politics. Democrats in the Congress are very much in favor of Puerto Rico's statehood simply because they think that would gain them two additional senators. And Republicans are very skeptical about Puerto Rico statehood for the exact same reason, two additional Democrat senators. But then we've got another issue coming up right now, and that is concern about statehood for the District of Columbia. The For the People Act that we've talked about before, this bill that would take essentially everything that was done illegally in a few contested states in the last election, the advance voting, the same-day registration, voting by mail, prohibitions on being able to check voter IDs and so on, all of those things would be made mandatory and applied to all 50 states and would be permanent from this point on if that For the People Act, H.R. 1, passes. We talked about that before. But there's another provision in H.R. 1 that really has very little to do with the rest of it and that is for D.C. statehood. It simply states a recognition by Congress that the people of the District of Columbia are entitled to vote in national elections, 
and that the only remedy for this is statehood. And so it's a start on the path toward statehood for the District of Columbia. Now, this raises a couple of different issues from Puerto Rico or other territories. And part of the issue here is that in Article 1, Section 8, we saw that Congress has the power to set up a certain area that is set apart from the other states. They purchased certain territory or had territory ceded to them from Virginia and territory from Maryland that became the District of Columbia. And the reason for this is they wanted the federal government to be in an area that was not controlled by one state. If it was controlled by one state, then that state might seem to have an inordinate influence over national policy than other states would. There was a lot of concern that the first capital was Philadelphia, and that would give Pennsylvania undue influence over national policy. Well, because Article 1, Section 8 provides that, and because Congress acted on that in setting up the District of Columbia, now there is a concern that statehood for District of Columbia would not have to be done just by the normal process that we've talked about with Puerto Rico. Rather, it would have to be done by a constitutional amendment. And that's unclear, but it certainly raises another possibility. There is a Congressman, Dusty Johnson from South Dakota, who has made a proposal that I think makes a great deal of sense and that's that if the residential districts of the District of Columbia want to vote, Congress could simply change the boundaries there and take that residential territory out of the District of Columbia and attach it back to Maryland. And so they would be part of Maryland and they could vote in Maryland elections. Likewise, with other territory that I believe this was done several decades ago and was ceded back to Virginia, and that residential area is now part of Virginia. And then the area of District of Columbia that is government offices and so on would still be the District of Columbia. That way, Maryland would have more voters than they had before, but there wouldn't be two new senators from the District of Columbia. Now, there's another matter here in regard to getting new states, and it goes on to say that no state shall be formed or erected within the jurisdiction of any other state. In other words, if, say, if Utah, if there was a movement to take Salt Lake City and make Salt Lake City a separate state from the rest of Utah, since it would be entirely within the state of Utah, that absolutely cannot be done. But if they wanted to take part of the territory of Utah and make that into a separate state, that could be done, but it'd have to be done with the approval of the Utah legislature and the approval of the United States Congress. Right now, there are proposals to divide the state of California into three states, which would mean that area that we know as California would have six senators rather than two senators, but on the other hand, it might mean that several of those states might be more Republican-leaning and the more populous area would be the Democrat-leaning area. And so 
what the effect of that could be is difficult to say. There is a county in the Northern Territory of Colorado that is a very conservative county, very much like Wyoming to the north of them. And Colorado, of course, the state government of Colorado has gone quite liberal in recent years. And I believe it's Weld County, if I recall correctly, their county commission is pursuing the possibility of Weld County seceding from Colorado and being attached to Wyoming. That could be done, but it would require the approval, first of all, of the Colorado legislature, and secondly, the approval of the Wyoming legislature. And whether that's going to happen, who knows. But this was done some time ago, way back at the time of the war between the states, with regard to West Virginia. West Virginia, up until that time, had been part of Virginia, which meant that Virginia was one of the biggest states in the country, both in population and in geography. And anyway, Virginia decided to secede from the Union, and they didn't do so right away. There was some resistance to secession in Virginia, and there was kind of an agreement made that the capital of Virginia, the capital of the Confederacy would be moved from Montgomery, Alabama, the first capital, to Richmond, Virginia, as part of the package deal to get Virginia to secede. But parts of Virginia, particularly the western parts, did not want to secede. That was mountain country. Mountain country is not plantation country, and so slavery was not very common there, and so they were not in favor of secession. And so when Virginia voted to secede, then a number of the counties in the western part of Virginia raised strong objections. And people in the Union looked at that and they thought, here's an opportunity to take a chunk away from the Confederacy and make it part of the Union. And since it borders on the Ohio River, that would give us control of the Ohio River, which could be vital in a conflict between the North and the South. So... Are you going to get the Virginia legislature to agree to that? Well, absolutely not. What they did then is they called an election, which was really a rump election. It was an election that really, practically speaking, took place only in the western counties. And there were Union soldiers there making sure that only those who intended to vote for West Virginia being separate were even going to be allowed to vote. And anyway, so... Enough of these counties in the western part of Virginia voted to set a new state legislature, and so they held this rump state legislature that the eastern part of the state didn't even participate in. This rump legislature then said, we approve West Virginia being a separate state, and Congress said, that's good enough for us, and we approved it. And so that's how West Virginia became a separate state from the state of Virginia questionable whether it was legal, but again, we were in a very strange situation and the United States Congress was interested in any pretense that could take territory away from the Confederacy and make it part of the Union. And it worked. And so West Virginia has been a state ever since. Anyway, normally when we're dealing with territories wanting to become states, we don't have conflicts like that. But as you can see, they do come up occasionally. And that certainly had a major effect on the history of the 
entire United States, possibly on the outcome of the war. Because with West Virginia being a state and West Virginia being on the south side of the Ohio River, this meant that the North had control of both sides of the Ohio River. If the South had managed to keep West Virginia, if they had kept Kentucky, and possibly if they kept Missouri as well, those could have been pretty vital as far as maybe changing the outcome of the war. Anyway, enough on new states. <laughs>